Welcome back to Do We Like Movies? I'm your host, Angel. And I'm currently dying, but I'm your other host, Javi. <laughs> Sorry, I just didn't have the energy to do something original this time. Uh, <clears throat> so, this this is our episode on The Conjuring. And you might be wondering why we're covering this episode. And really, the reason w- why the idea came to me was because last week was the... Uh, passing of Lorraine Warren who was the you know the surviving member of Ed and Lorraine who were renowned uh paranormal investigators I guess they're investigators uh Ed I guess is a self-proclaimed demonologist that was recognized by the Catholic Church apparently um so Ed and Lorraine had interesting lives where Ed was a Navy SEAL. No, not Navy SEAL, sorry. <laughs> I'm making him out to be way cooler. But he was a he was a Navy sailor and then um and then he was a cop for a couple years and now or you know, at the, and then he met Lorraine and Lorraine was a medium who something about going into trances, right? Like that was her medium power is that she would go into these trances and see into the other world and i mean that was my understanding and then they they met each other and they became perfect for one another and they went on to fight and kick ass for the lord is my you know that's kind of what i get from Uh, this movie is actually going to be the first movie that we've done that is based on a true story yeah well or you put around some quotation marks around true. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's it's anytime you see based on a true story in a horror movie, it is something that you take with a great grain of salt. And uh, the earliest example of that, I think, to me, is uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? Yeah. Which like purported to be based on a true story all the way everywhere and it was really just a adaptation of the Ed Gein story and it really only took sections of him anyway. Yeah. Or the Blair Witch when we were kids and the viral marketing that was based on a true story as well. So I mean based on a true story those words scare the crap out of us but you know it's a psychological thing or, or you know I think you, like I know you haven't talked about it on this podcast but I know you've talked about it before with other friends of ours just that uh the eeriness of the first paranormal activity um and how that you know at first no one knew if that was supposed to be a documentary or something but you know it was one of those things it was paranormal par- activity everyone did know it was a film yeah i i knew that no well cuz paranormal no, I'm with you. i cuz i originally heard about paranormal activity like in late 2008 like it was a movie that initially was made in 2007 and it like ran the festival circuit for two years. The rights got bought up by Paramount, and the story was that um, there was a is that Steven Spielberg, uh, I guess, was going to executive produce a remake of it. And apparently, he saw the original film, and stuff started happening in his house. What? So he, uh, the legend says that he took the disc, 
put it inside a trash bag, and took it back to Paramount and left it there. And he he just threw it like he threw it on the front like doormat and lit it on fire like it was dog doo doo. But essentially, the idea was that they were going to... And the reason why Paranormal Activity is actually kind of relevant to this is because this is a Blumhouse movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a movie that followed Insidious, um, which was also from the house that created Paranormal Activity. Uh, Eventually, Paranormal Activity becomes uh, part of... You know, it, it was part of Paramount. And then Paramount splinters off into, you know, doing some of these in, more independent, independent horror movies where they would make a lot of money by not having to do a lot, right? And if you guys know us, we do love us some Blumhouse over here. And the other thing, too, is it's... So before we get into the movie, we can, you know, recap a little bit of the real-life Ed and Lorraine Warren. Well... Before I mean, before we get into that, I think it's important for each to understand where each of us is coming from as far as the paranormal goes, because there is a lot of suspension of disbelief that needs to go along if you want to be in that entrenched in that world, right? So before we go into these two individuals, who honestly they're very por- polarizing people when it comes to the. Um, the world of paranormal investigation. My question to you is, how do you feel about the paranormal world? Like, what do you believe about the paranormal? To be honest, I guess I would be kind of a skeptic. Okay. Um, I, I say kind of a skeptic because, to be honest, there's a lot of this stuff that I don't believe happens the way movies portray them or the way stories are told like to me a lot of this stuff is like urban legend Mm -hmm. and just you know people telling stories or maybe experiencing things that felt very real to them Mm -hmm. you know i don't know to me it's just there's so much out there that's not explained and just not explainable Mm -hmm. that we try to find all sorts of what we think caused it Mm. And uh, I, I approach everything, you know, from kind of an agnostic point of view. And uh, I, uh, but that said, you know, I don't. If anyone, you know, that I'm around has those kinds of beliefs, I'm also not the kind of person that's going to belittle anyone for having those beliefs. Because I think one of the reasons why it's the unknown is because I don't know what is out there as well. No, and that's fair. You know, I think I'm in a very similar school of thought as you is, you know, I'm a very, I mean, I failed out of some of the best science classes that Cal State East Bay has to offer. (laughs) And, you know, like when, when we're talking about the paranormal, like I'm very much love the lore and I love learning about weirdness. And, but that being said, I'm a skeptic. I'm very much a skeptic. Anytime I hear a story, I always have to find a way to try to disprove it. But I'm a skeptic that wants to be proven wrong. Like, it's really weird to describe. Um, but for that same reason, like, it's important to kind of, kind of like, view the paranormal through that lens is trying to have that idea of the, of the, of the scientific method, right? Can these things be repeated is there a pattern? Have all variables variables been ruled out? Um, but the thing is, with uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren, they weren't like that. And Ed and like it's gonna be very hard for me. Um, you know, I, I'm, I said it as a joke. You know, <laughs> earlier when we were deciding whether we wanted to um, 
whether we wanted to do this film, right? Whether we wanted to review this film. Um, it's very hard for me to talk about Ed and Lorraine Warren without having some sort of, what's the word, disdain? You know, and, and especially right now, you don't want to speak ill of the dead. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of things that they did wrong. <laughs> and there's a lot of... There's a lot of things that I didn't agree with with their investigations and how they did things and how at the end of the day they were more they were more worried with telling a story than they were with telling the truth. And I feel that if you're going to be a quote unquote investigator, you know, you your 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 priority has to be the truth. That being said, The Conjuring is a story. And it is a work of fiction. It is a great work of fiction. And we're going to talk about it as the mo- as the review continues. But I think it's really important that you, that, that, you know, our listeners and anyone that loves this movie, like you said earlier, you got to take this with a huge grain of salt. That as much as we would love to believe that, you know, Vera Farmiga and, um, oh my God, why am I blanking on my man crush Patrick, Patrick Wilson? Wilson. <laughs> You know, and as much as, like, I would love to believe that's what Ed and Lorraine Warren were, you know, the the truth is that, you know, unfortunately, those movies are definitely closer to fiction than they were fact. Also, that being said, going to completely open up to our audience and you. I wish, in a, in a different world, if I can make a decent living as a paranormal investigator... I totally would have gone that route as oh, a kid. Yeah. Anytime I see anything like The Conjuring or, more importantly, Poltergeist. Poltergeist is the movie that I watched that I was just like, man, this would be so fucking cool if this was a job that I could do. I will admit this, that up until, I want to say as, as recent as maybe two or three years ago, I was looking up places near our hometowns where towns because well angel and i both live in different areas <laughs> but i've been looking up in hometowns places that would take volunteers as paranormal investigators <laughs> like and i'm talking about i'm about to turn 28 so this was when i was like 25 20 this wasn't when i was like a 20 year old kid like this was like fairly recently as an adult because i am you know, intrigued by the paranormal world. So fairly recently, like this, that was still a very real possibility for me. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, the other thing too is I, I'm glad we brought up the idea of ghost hunters and that kind of stuff because the first, my first exposure to Lorraine Warren before this movie mm-hmm. actually was the A and E uh, television show uh, Paranormal State. Which was mm. like a offshoot of Ghost Hunters, right? Oh, Except okay. it was it, it it followed a university, like you know, a team of paranormal researchers from a university, and they would go and kind of list do you know listen to sounds in houses and stuff like that, kind of like what Ghost Adventures does now. Yeah, it was one of those things. And when they would need a medium to come and talk to the spirits, that's when Lorraine Warren would guest star in the series. So, um, mm. and again, the show, I think all of those shows, have, they're not, you know, very much to be believed. And that mm-hmm. comes from someone who loves, like, marathoning episodes of Ghost Adventures. Yeah. So, um, 
mind you, we also used to marathon episodes of Bar Rescue. So take our like take our reviews with a grain of salt as well. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely a creepy show, and uh, Lorraine definitely comes off as an interesting presence in the show. How did she come off? Because I've never, I've never saw Paranormal State. My sister told me I would have loved it, and she recommended it. But she's very likable. Okay, she's very likable on the show, and which is why, like, you know, I, I do not want to disparage people who just passed away. Yeah, you know. Um, but that said, it it's they're they're. Their work comes with a great amount of scrutiny. Yeah. Um, in these movies, Conjuring One and Two, they come off as people who were, you know, who were begrudgingly brought into these situations uh, where they had to deal with the paranormal, and they're, you know, they have to come together to help overcome some of these, uh, some of these, you know, dangerous situations that they're in. In reality, a lot of the cases that they were involved in were more, like, existing cases that were ongoing. And then they would kind of come in to kind of further their own careers, right? Mm-hmm. They would just kind of come in like, oh, you know, hey, you have a ghost. Is there anything that, you, you know, that we can... Because there's, like, the stories um, for the Enfield Haunting or the Enfield Poltergeist, which is what mm-hmm. Conjuring 2 is based on. Like, a lot of the stuff that was there... Um, in that, you know, in that investigation was actually done by someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the earlier, yeah, a lot of the earlier investigation was done, uh, by a na- by a man named Guy Lyon Playfair. And, uh, you know, he, he was the guy who was involved with a lot of the investigation. He did a lot of the recording of the Enfield, like, voice and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then the Warrens came in afterwards, right? Mm-hmm. So it's... The other one that was very famous that they did uh, was the movie. There was a movie that came out called The Haunting in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And that one was a story, you know, about a family who had moved into what used to be a mortuary. And uh, their son was haunted by, like, ghosts that live in the downstairs. Ba- and I've seen this on multiple documentary shows, this actual case. Mm-hmm. It is pretty horrible. Like, I would, as a teenager, I would never live, like, want to have my bedroom be the basement of a home, especially a basement that very clearly had a glass door that like led into an autopsy room. Oh my god, the fuck side. the shit out of that, dude. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, with that case itself, um, there was a lot of reports about the girls in that family that got, you know, molested by ghosts mm. in the evening. And I think there's there's fair amounts of evidence that can you know, suggests that there may have been some sexual assault uh, on the part of the central teenage boy um, in that story, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's again, Wait, like movies... he was the victim of or he was the perpetrator? He may have been the perpetrator. Oh, shit. And again, this is not confirmed anything. It's just like, there's just certain things that do kind of point to that being the case, right? Look, we're not gonna, we're, we're like, it's really important. And like, that's not an Ed and Lorraine Warren thing. Yeah, right? yeah, like, not at was, all, not at all. Like they, like, but, but where they kind of come in is they've sensationalized some of the details in this case. Mm-hmm. And I think most importantly to kind of go over, um, 
there was there was the what they called uh, the demon the demon murder trial, uh-huh. and that was uh, from a 1981 case where a guy named Darn Johnson who was accused of uh, killing his landlord, and Ed and Lorraine got called into this, uh, and their first response to this was that the perpetrator was uh, possessed by a demon. And they really wanted to use this as a defense in court. Mm-hmm. And it was just one of those situations that definitely hurt the families of the victim mm-hmm. and the family of, you know, of just, it's one of those things where they kind of stepped in and they made things a lot worse for mm-hmm. actual people who were being harmed by this. Yep. So. And it's, it's one of those things where it's like, they came around in a time in the, in American history where we were very much more likely to accept weird goofy things is real you know like for us it was very uh, it, it was like i hate saying it was simpler times but it really was like it was simpler times where you were like where you were more likely to accept the uh you were more likely to accept the, the supernatural as science or as fact or as well, truth. The right? 1980s brought a, brought about the satanic panic, right? Oh, don't even get me started on how much I love and hate the satanic panic. Oh, it's pretty great, and 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 I'm not going to get too far into that. If you really do want to get into that, there are there is an awesome podcast that I just started listening to that that covers a lot of that. So mm-hmm. I would love if you have any questions, like please, please, please. Uh, you know, private message us, and I mm-hmm. will refer you to that podcast. It's, Angel, it's Angel and I are total weird world podcast, true crime podcast fans as well, and we are all kind of like secretly into this shit, whether we want to admit it or not. So yeah, hit us up about it. We don't want to get too far off because at the end of the day, um, you know, we're, we are still a movie podcast, and we're here to talk about The Conjuring. But yeah. we we also don't want you guys to think, oh, these guys hate Ed and Lorraine Warren. Yeah. No, they're they're the kind of people that came around at the right time, selling the right thing to make money. Yeah. And you again, know? I also think that they're 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 very likable presence. Like Lorraine, again, in Paranormal State, she was very likable. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, it's just that's pretty much all I'll say on that. Yeah. Um. Now, we can actually jump into what we're here to talk about, which is the 2013 film by James Wan, uh, The Conjuring. Now, the funny thing about this movie is that the first time we both watched it, it was actually together, right? Really? Like, we watched it in a, with, in a group of friends. Did, did you come with us? To the I didn't make it that it? night. Oh, okay. Because I remember I missed out on all the dank memes you guys were sending. <laughs> all right. I forgot why I couldn't go. I think I was working or something. Oh, Okay. Well, Thanks, that, Dick. <laughs> well, in that case, what is your first experience with this movie? My, my first experience is watching it with you. As a lot of astute listeners will probably notice, that's going to end up happening a lot of times with certain of these movies. I want to say you sat me down and made me watch it. And then it frightened me. <laughs> but, you know, I was an adult. This was definitely the time when I was starting to get into horror movies and the first thing that stood out to me is how different this felt from other horror movies at the time. Because this came out in 2013. If I remember correctly, 2009 to 2011 was when the whole 3D thing was making a comeback. And there was like this push for horror movies with 3D in it. And horror movies from the 2000s, I am not a fan of. Yeah, that, that, they're all that, gimmicky. Those years from 2000... To about 2012, like they're just not great. They're shit. Like and if they're not if they're not um, gore porn, 
they're like super like CGI to the max, and it's just like, or they're rehashes of old movies, you know, and you know, uh, it gets it gets tiring of it. You know, you get tired of seeing the same shit. But then this movie comes along, and holy shit! Like the one of the big selling points for me was this was done with practical effects. And that's really fucking cool. You don't see that. It's 2013. You don't see that shit anymore. So right then, I'm like, I don't know when I'm going to watch this movie. I know I'm going to watch it. I missed out on watching it. Thankfully, I think you got it on DVD or you ordered it or some shit. I I own it. Yeah. Yeah, and then we watched it at your house or your parents' house. Which, God, you know what? Your parents' house, the old house, used to be so creepy sometimes. The old house? The Well, the one you used to live in, right? (laughs) <laughs> okay. Just because it had that like creepy backyard where you can look up to the hilltop, and I, I remember like if oh you... right, and and my parents like backyard is on the other side of a place called Rolling Hills, which, which happens is... to be a fucking cemetery. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember like there would be sometimes like at night I would be very creeped out because I'm like I don't know what the fuck's on top of that hill. They could be looking right in at us. Yeah. But yeah, that was my first experience was watching it with you. My first experience with watching this movie was the trailers looked really good. A bunch of our friends ended up going uh, to watch it the night it was it was coming out. And when we went to go see it, I thought it was really interesting. My sister and I both noticed that there was a sign outside the theater for this movie where it like gave you a warning about how scary this movie was. And how a lot of people decided to consult their priest after they saw it, right? <laughs> Which, For real? I, I, and the funny thing is that, like, again, I am pretty much an agnostic, but I think it's just because the kind of mood that it caught me in and the time of night and just whatever it was, it that that really it hit me mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, that, that it doesn't normally hit me. And I was like, okay, we're about to watch something scary. Grabs rosary. <laughs> oh yeah, my sister freaked out when she saw that. You oh, know, that like, is hilarious. My sister like felt like she needed some sort of religious like relief or something from that. Um, but we go again. We go into the movie, and right away, um, the style of this movie harkens back to The Exorcist a lot. Mm-hmm. A lot of it can harken back to Poltergeist. It's a very 70s, 80s horror movie. Yeah. And not even just in the time that it's taking place in, but it's also just the way... The way it's shot. The way some of the camera... Yeah, like, because there's, there's another fantastic movie that does some of this. Uh, House of the Dead, right? Yes. This High West oh, movie from 2009. God, yes. This, it is one of my favorite horror movies ever. Like, mm-hmm. ever. Hands because down. It, it feels... I've never seen a movie that feels more like a late 70s, early 80s horror movie than that. And this doesn't feel... It doesn't feel as authentic as House of the Devil, Mm -hmm. but I love the fact that they use a lot of 70s camera tricks, like the zoom in. Or the lingering shots, or the wide panoramic shots. Specifically, the shots when you're coming up on that big horrifyingly old house yeah and then there was also an, a, a scene where it slowly pans in to the to the lake in the back yep and so those are like segments where i definitely feel like i'm in a 70s movie mm-hmm. and i think if you go into it thinking it is some sort of an offshoot of the exorcist it's a good place to go because this movie is going to show you a lot of demon faces yep 
And another thing that James Wan is just... Good Exorcist, by the way. Not Exorcist 2, like our earlier <laughs> review. <laughs> uh, one thing that James Wan really just does, and does pretty well, even though it's kind of a cliche of horror movies, is the jump scare. Oh, Will, oh the fucking jump scare. And... I am fucking tired of the jump scare. <laughs> like, it's... It, it, yeah, it's like... It's cheap. It's cheap way to get scares and to get people to, to, to... Like, at this point, I laugh at jump scares because I've been scared so many goddamn times by jump scares. <laughs> but, um... Th- that was... Uh, I'll go into it. But I just... I got tired of jump scares. And I think I've seen this movie so many times enough that that this viewing, the last one we did for the review for this episode, was when I realized I fucking hate jump scares. And this... I hate jump scares so much and they are so overused that it kind of takes away some of the effect this movie has for me. Mm. You know? Um, but I'll save that for, like, ending thoughts. So this movie starts, it, really it starts with an unrelated story, mm-hmm. but a story that just, it sets you up perfectly for what you're about to see, and that is the story of Annabelle. Um, so the real Annabelle doll, I'll put that in air quotes, quote, quote. is not the horrifyingly wonderful creepy doll that they put into this movie because it's that weird porcelain looking doll it is terrifying that shit's creepy as shit yeah it's like it's like nobody would ever own this because it was never (laughs) like (laughs) what kid would ask for this doll like, like if it someone, was never nice. It was never nice looking at any point in its existence. Like if someone ever gave this to my goddaughter as a gift, I'd shoot them. <laughs> <laughs> but the original doll was a Raggedy Ann doll. Yeah. And um so the story of Annabelle, which has never really been proven or corroborated, like there's no real evidence outside of the stuff that Ed and Lorraine Warren have said. And the idea is that this is you know, it was relayed to them by a couple of roommates who are, I guess, nursing students. Uh, they said that their Raggedy Ann doll was possessed by the spirit of a young girl named Annabelle Higgins. Uh, the Warrens basically took the doll uh, because the roommates said that it was like it would move around the room, like they would mm-hmm. put it in one location and it ended up somewhere else. And then she started break dancing and shit. <laughs> they gave they the doll would apparently leave notes in their house. You know, and mm. it, it, it it's not like the notes that are presented in the film. Apparently, mm. like, the notes were a lot more garbled and made less sense. Kind of like the drunk notes I leave for myself to read when I'm sober. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it, they took it, uh, the Warrens take the doll, and it now, I don't know what's going to happen with it now, but for the longest time it existed in their occult museum, mm-hmm. which was like a offshoot from their home in this film. Mm-hmm. Um so it's, you know, I remember the night that this movie came out, all over Instagram were, like, pictures of Lorraine Warren holding the Raggedy Ann doll. Yeah. And then people looking at the Raggedy Ann doll from inside a glass case. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's awesome. I mean, like, it, it, something like that, a change like that, definitely lends, like, the to the real world feeling of like you know of fear right like Mm. you're like yeah obviously what i'm watching in the movie is fake but that real doll exists like you know it's it's out there it's it's where social media kind of helps like 
play into the illusion. This social social media some days, when used right, will sell your movie a whole shit ton better than any marketing team you can ever put together. Well, the Blair Witch Project was the birth of that. Pretty much. With the, yeah. That movie owes all of its success to the rise of the internet. So... Uh, after we go through that section of it, that's when we're introduced to the people who are actually the center of this film, and that's the Perrin family, mm-hmm. uh, which are a family that lived, in, I guess it's in New England, Rhode Island? Yeah, that's certainly New England. So, like, New England is that weird upper tip of the U.S. that includes Massachusetts and every other tiny state no one ever talks about. Yeah, yeah so, so this... Place, I guess you know it's like a trucker and his family. Mm-hmm. Um, Ron yeah. Livingston from a, uh, Office Space fame. A quaint world where people would, you know, live where people could have a home off of one person bringing in the income. Well, yeah, it's nineteen seventy one, and but at this time, being a trucker is a very well paid, respectable profession. Mm-hmm. And not only is it a, just a one-person income household, it's a one-person income household. That one income will support five growing girls. Yeah. So this is already like a seven-person household that this one man is like putting together. And his five daughters include... Oh, God. I, you know I had to look this up. Mm-hmm. Andrea, or Andrea, Nancy, Christine, Cindy, and April. Oh, and his wife, Carolyn. Mm-hmm. So the, this is the Perron? 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 I've been calling him Perron. Okay. Yeah. Not Perron. Well, let's keep it consistent. I don't care. So the Perron family is, you know, they're all pretty likable. You know, they're your simple... You know. This one thing this movie does so well is the casting. The oh, casting yes. of this movie is A+. Plus. Um, the wife who is played by... Uh, Lily Taylor, you know, she was the wife to Ron, Liv- Ron Livingston's character. Just saying, two of uh, two of my four Mount Rushmore Hollywood dads are in this movie. Ron Livingston and Patrick Wilson. <laughs> uh, so, you know, again, it, it, the and the just fantastic casting of Ed and Lorraine Warren as Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga. Um, I could not love these two characters more than I do. They are just like, I can imagine that if I was someone experiencing what these people are experiencing, that their presence would make me feel instantly safe. And it didn't matter what I believed in. I would instantly just feel a lot safer having them in my presence. And you know, what's funny is that's kind of what happens. That's what happened to me as a viewer in this movie. Is I remember, like, and even, it still happens to this day. Like, I'll watch this film, and the creepy shit will happen. But I know as soon as I see Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga that everything's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. Nothing's going to happen while they're there. And if it does, they're there to handle it. And they're there to be in control. Because they know what's going on. And And there's something about those types of characters in these types of films that really, like, that it really, like, it, when they're casted the way and written the way these characters are in The Conjuring, it really, like, it does a good job of drawing the audience in it draw, and the viewer and really makes you connect with these folks. And it makes you care about them, you know? Like, it definitely hu- humanizes everybody. But, yeah, I got to echo what you said. Casting in this entire film was great. Yeah. 
So the family moves into this horrifying house in New England. Um, and it's, it's obviously it's big enough to fit a family of five girls plus the parents. Yeah. But it's just, you know, I, God, God damn it, I would never want to live there. The, the piping Hell looks no. really old and creep, creepy. Um, it's got, the moment that the wall came apart and you found out there was a secret basement, I would have just said, fuck all of this. I am done. This is the worst type of house, in my opinion, because it has this long-ass driveway where you have to drive through these, like, this like this tunnel of trees, and it opens up to an opening that only surrounds the house. And then on either, you know, and then you have the lake, but surrounding the house on three sides are just more thick brush and trees. And that terrifies me because I would have preferred just being an out open ass field. Like I would much prefer that because at least I can pick a direction and I can see for the next two, three miles here. There can be someone in the tree line. There cannot be like, it's very, it's very much a terrifying looking house and it's a terrifying looking location. Mm. No, not terrifying, but it is creepy. It definitely catches. It has you on edge the moment you get into, uh, on locale. Yeah. So, um, you know, it very, uh, slowly, well, in the beginning it's slow. It speeds up really, uh, after a few nights, but from the moment that they move in, they have a dog that does not want to go inside the house. Mm -hmm. Um, they complain about low temperatures in the home that they're in. And again, it's just it, it, it's something that you've seen in a million different movies a million different times. It is a family moving into a haunted house. What's funny is that it plays on the fact that you should already know this as a viewer. And because I remember when I watched this and I remember that part, they're like, yeah, there's some parts that are cold. And I'm like, mm -mm, you should leave right now. <laughs> oh, the dog doesn't want to go in there. Better fucking move. Mm -hmm. And it's like. Yeah, like you were saying, it plays on all these tropes that we already know. And thanks to that, it wastes no time. Because right, I think from night one, shit starts happening. Yeah. Like the first night, uh, you know, the, the over the first night is when the dog dies. And a lot of no, movies don't. No, it's before that. They were playing the clap game. And remember, they would hear the ghost claps. That's what started it. That, that first night is they're getting used to the new house. And then there's the, the ghost clap that kind of like slam it locks one of the girls in the in the closet I think, mm -hmm. and I think that's what kind of starts it because I think the next day is when the dog dies. A really good device that this movie uses is the creation of the hide and clap game. Yep, a game that I've never heard of in my life. Never played it. Never will play it. I have no intention to play it. I have yeah. a goddaughter. I'm <laughs> never gonna play it with her. <laughs> But apparently what they all do is they blind, these girls will blindfold one of the sisters, spin her around in circles, and basically play hide and seek. It's like a combination of hide and seek and Marco Polo. Yeah. Where, yeah. where one of them is blindfolded and has to search for the other ones, and they all just kind of clap to kind of show where they are, and she's supposed to, you know, whoever's blindfolded has to go find them. You know, and it's just one of those things that you just know is going to come back no matter what. Mm -hmm. Um, also the first night, uh, when one of the girls gets, you know, uh, slammed into the closet, that's when you discover that there is a, you know, loose boards in the walls of the closet. Mm -hmm. 
And those loose boards, once uh, the parents get into the situation, are, you know, those are the boards that open up and give you, you know, entrance into the basement. Oh, no, you're right. That's what it was. They opened that up. I think the first night was like birds are flying into the windows. That as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A, lot anyway. of stuff, a lot of stuff happens those first few nights. But it's like little things you don't think about. But right. yeah, they find the basement, which... Red flag should be why the fuck is his basement? It feels up? a lot like it, it without having to use any of the found footage conceit. It's doing a lot of the same stuff that Paranormal Activity does. Mm-hmm. Paranormal Activity is very terrifying off of a lot of things that you don't see and sounds. Yep. Right. And just atmosphere and mood. And what I, what I love about Paranormal Activity is that Paranormal Activity makes modern houses terrifying. This movie is making this old, ter- already terrifying house even more and more terrifying. It definitely does the show, show don't tell approach, and it does it well. Yeah. And the other thing is when the clocks are now stopping uh, in the middle of the night, it stops at 3.07 a.m. Now, the night that I watched this movie and went home from watching this movie, <laughs> because it was a midnight release, right? Yeah. I fell asleep for a little bit. What time do you think it was when I woke up in the middle of the night? Uh, six to midnight. <laughs> That's a boner joke. It was like 3.05. Oh, fuck that. And I happened to be awake at 3.07 that night. And I was so fucking terrified that I literally had to grab my... So I had Batman the Animated Series on DVD. And I had to grab like... A disc from my season two of Batman the Animated Series and literally looped it <laughs> so grabs, that I could go to sleep. Grabs shotgun, grabs Batman the Animated Series. <laughs> come on, Satan, come and get me. <laughs> so oh, every man. time that I watch this movie, it actually reminds me of the Riddler episode from Batman the Animated Series, just because that is what I had to watch. And put on repeat to be able to sleep after this. You know, I can't talk shit because I, I went through that in high school where I watched a scary movie. And I, I woke up in the middle of the night and asked my sister to watch a funny movie with me. And she told me to eat shit. So, <laughs> I think we all have our not-so-strong moments. Mm. Oh, God. So, 307 becomes a very... Well, 3, three in general is very important in the paranormal investigative world. Yeah. But specifically in this movie, it's important because it comes up uh, plenty of times. Um, don't want to spoil too much, so we'll get to it eventually. But um, a few days later, after these weird occurrences start happening, everything ramps up. And this gets to what Angel was talking about, where the family dog, Sadie, is killed in the yard. Like... I don't remember how she died. Do you remember? Like, is it even no, said? I, it's not shown. It's not shown, no, right? Just no. that they're like, oh, the dog's dead now. Well, no, the little girl goes out one morning and like the youngest daughter goes out into the yard to go find her. And that's when she sees her dead outside the house. Oh, God, that's so creepy. It's terrifying. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's one of those things where it's like this movie is simultaneously jumping back between this family and in Lorraine. Mm-hmm. And this family is in so much danger that every any time that it cuts to Ed and Lorraine, you're like, no, 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 please stay here. Stay with these people. <laughs> no, please don't leave. I don't want to go back with the other people who are experienced stuff. Because 
if you watch and know Paranormal Activity or other movies like that, you know that it's just going to get more, it's just going to get worse as it goes on. And then, you know what the fucking worst part about this is? The kids. The kids invite so much creepiness, and this is why I don't want to have kids. And anyone Too late that, for me. And anyone that wishes kids on me, I'll fight you. I'll fight you right now, okay? Because guess what? The kids introduce the creepiness. There's the little cute girl that starts talking about Rory and being like, oh, Rory's my imaginary friend. First of all, imaginary friends are stupid and they're creepy. And if I ever have a kid and they start talking about imaginary friends, I'm getting a shotgun, okay? Apparently I had an imaginary oh, friend. Oh, fuck you. Kid. I think we all did. But I think you outgrow that at, like, at least by, what, seven Maybe. Let me get super personal. I was actually in therapy at a very young age oh, because shit. I had an imaginary friend. Oh my god! Wait, <laughs> how old were you though? I was like at least like, if not pre-kinder, like kinder age. But that—that's normal. Like you, you know, yeah. that's like normal age to have a uh, have an imaginary friend. You know what's really crazy about that though? What? This is now we're like totally jumping off this movie. If you're into creepy shit. This better be a, an episode that you're going to enjoy. Because I've actually, like, as an adult, I've had a dream where I, like, am somehow a kid again. And I'm, and, and I was, like, telling somebody about my imaginary friend. Mm-hmm. And I actually not saw them, but in this dream, like, I would see shadows in mm-hmm. the house that I was living in. Oh, my God. And I'm living for this shit, <laughs> and I'm terrified. And yeah, so that was like that's the closest thing that I because obviously I don't remember any of this. I was very young when this happened, but it's you know it's because of my parents that I know that this even happened, and I have like vague you know like when you're that young, Mm -hmm. you get blocks of memory, right? And I just have like little little blocks of memory, but I, I I don't ever remember knowing what a face looked like, and God knows as a child, you know sometimes you just do things to. It's a call for attention, right? Yeah. You know, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not here to imply that I've had any kind of paranormal like. <laughs> you, you want to know what happened to my imaginary friend? You killed my imaginary friend because I remember I was six and my imaginary friend was named Boner. <laughs> what? Yeah, I had an imaginary friend. I was like six or seven. I remember I had an imaginary friend named Boner, and he he was a skeleton. <laughs> And I told you, you will not remember this because it was so long ago. I told you, yeah, that's my imaginary friend, Boner. And you're like, Boner, like when your dick gets hard? (laughs) (laughs) So I I said goodbye to Boner after that. (laughs) And I never had an imaginary friend again. You are so fucking welcome for that. (laughs) Sorry for going on that tangent, y'all. But the point of the story is, if your kid has an imaginary friend, just abandon them. (laughs) But not only that, like the kids invite not the kids invite all kinds of creepiness in this movie. Not just the little one that has the imaginary friend named Rory, Mm -hmm. but there's a scene coming up. But like when there's a point at one of the nights, one of the girls wakes up and she's like petrified. Mm -hmm. And she, like, sees somebody in the corner of their room. Yeah. Right? And then she, like, has this crazy night terror. 
And to the point where Ron Livingston has to run in and like shake her awake. Yeah. Which you're not supposed to do. No. Absolutely <laughs> like, not. And then he's like, But they have, they have some sort of understanding of the sleep issues that she has because at one point, one of the daughters is sleepwalking yeah. and bumping her head against the dresser. And they have to lead her back into her bed. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, they, they mentioned in the movie that she hadn't been, she hadn't had an episode of those since she, since they moved into the house, right? Like, that's what's triggered it. Mm. But this girl, I forget which one it was, but she does that. And these kids are great actors, actresses, technically, where she, like, points, right? And then, like, she'll be like, there's something behind you. <laughs> oh, no, wait. I'm getting, my, I'm getting my nights confused. Sorry. No, no, no. She does, she does wake one of the sisters up, and she does tell the sister that there's something behind her. Yeah. But you, you don't see anything. Yeah. It's like a shadow, right? Yeah, dude. And that is such a good setup because, it, 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 you know, it'll set you up for something. And it's just like... You you are just expecting to see something, and there's nothing, and it there. doesn't give you anything. Even though it does, like it it does do like some sort of jump scare, and then all of a sudden you hear the girl screaming, and that's when the father. That's comes what into it the room, was, right? The girl starts screaming, and then you know they do that excellent. I, they do that excellent part where she has the, the night terror, and they're shaking her, and then she goes, you know, oh, they were telling me, uh, they were telling me that I had to kill my family, that I had to hurt my family, and it hates you. It, and I was like, holy shit, these kids are good actresses. <laughs> and holy shit, the whole point of these is like... Well, I think Joey King was the one who played the girl with the night terrors, right? Who's Joey King? The short-haired girl. No, I mean, like, is she from anything else I should know her from? Well, she played young Talia al Ghul in Dark Knight Rises. It's one of the things she's been in. Ah, yes. <laughs> young Talia al Ghul. <laughs> she, she's been in several other uh, things as well. She, she's a pretty well-known actress at yeah. this point. So anyway, at this point, you know, this is the point where shit hits the fan. Because we, this, this is, we, we finally see the creepy face. We finally get to see our exorcist creepy face. And it's on top of the... F- Okay. Fucking okay, okay, okay. To this day, and maybe forever in my life, this movie has one of the most horrifying movie jump scares ever. And that, what I talked about, the setup, right? Yep. Where it sets you up with a scare where you don't see where anything is. You are lulled into such a false sense of security. It, they lie to you. Where, yeah, where you didn't think it was going to happen. They're like, look. You know, Exorcist is a classic. There's no way they're going to do Exorcist things here. Even though I've seen Insidious, I know that James Wan loves doing... Exorcist things. Yeah. (laughs) For lack of a better term. He loves doing demon and witch faces. Yep. But it just doesn't... It doesn't compute with me that I'm going to see what I'm about to see here. Yep. And... It makes sense that this is just the final straw that pulls them over to having to go seek the paranormal, right? Yep. Exorcist does an awesome thing where it takes one of the, you know, scariest parts of the movie to reveal to you. Like, you know, the head turn where it reveals to you that Reagan was capable of killing someone. Yeah. And thus now it's time to go find a priest. This movie doesn't do something that drastic. But, yeah, this is absolutely fucking terrifying. Yep. And that's uh, where one of the girls, like, opens up, you know, uh, the dresser. 
and thinking that something's going to be inside the dresser because of all the noises that are going on in the room. And then from there, you know, the sister who was pointing earlier, who, the exact same sister who was pointing, the same setup. Yep. The sister who was pointing earlier saying that there was something there, you know, like is doing the same thing again, except this time she's looking higher than where, you know, the dresser is. Yeah. So she turns around and you look up at the top of the dresser and the jump scare just zooms in oh on the demon God. face that's up there. And the D or and well, we can call her. You know, it's either a witch she's or a, a witch. demon. Ba- yeah, yeah, she's a witch. So she jumps off the dresser onto one of the girls, and that I was just like, "Fuck this!" I th- hell, hell no! <laughs> to the, no, no, no! This is when a lot of us checked out. And I just yeah, it it, it is the most famous movie for the scene from this movie. It's one of the best horror scenes from any movie I've ever seen in my life. Like, ghosts aren't supposed to touch you. They shouldn't be able to do that, except for in the movie Ghost. <laughs> and even then, that was Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> and it just, like, gives you such a setup, right? Like, I mean, it just, it does it so perfectly. And James Wan just sets the, you know, the best trap to get you, you know, to this point. From here, we finally cut back to where Ed and Lorraine Warren are. Yep, and they're doing you know uh, they're at a university campus and they're it's them reviewing cases that they've had before. God damn it, dude! I would have loved to be alive in the seventies, not in the I was born in the wrong generation. But the fact that I could have made a living fucking get drinking whiskey and like investigating ghosts and shit. <laughs> yes, I was born in the wrong generation. Well, the, you know the I do like that they actually show Ed and Lorraine. Uh, surveying someone's house where they're experiencing noises that they think are demons and Ed and Lorraine disprove it and find out that it's piping, right? That is causing all these noises and just things that have normal explanations. Which is a really cool scene because it makes movie Lorraine and uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren, like it makes them, uh, it it proves they're investigators, right? It proves that they're trying to, that, that are, they're trying to get down to the cause of stuff. They're not trying to sensationalize. They're not in it for their own personal gain. They're actually there because they want to, you know, they have a purpose. And that God put them together for a reason. And that comes up several times in this film. Is that they were put together for a reason. And we get to see that reason, you know. So it was cool to include, I thought it was cool to include that scene where they get to disprove. And they can dispel this rando haunting, you know. Mm Mm-hmm. So they, you know, from there, after their, their I guess, lecture is over, they're, uh, Ed and Lorraine are walking to their car, um, and it's very clear that, you know, that they've, that there's something that has happened that has made them, I guess, less enthusiastic than you would probably, like, they give the impression that they're very into their work and what they do, mm-hmm. but personally, when they're outside, like, this this lecture hall setting, you know, they seem like they're a lot more disturbed by the things that are going on. Lorraine looks tired. Yeah. And it becomes a major plot point that, you know, that that every time that they decide to investigate one of these cases, it takes a part of Lorraine out and kind of causes her to have some sort of breakdown, right? Because they call her a medium, but I think a more fair term, and I think using those, like, 
psychological terms that I've learned so much lately is she's very empathetic. I don't think I don't think there's much, you know, witchcraft and sorcery when it comes to Lorraine Warren as much as she was probably very empathetic and very in tune to somebody's feelings. And that's probably why she was such an effective paranormal investigator, right? Is that she can kind of like sense people's feelings and she can relate to them on that emotional level. And I think as someone who personally is very empathetic and as someone that has worked in a trauma centered field for so long, like that shit does wear on you and you fucking, you come home with that shit and then you just got to disconnect everything. You get so tired. You get so, so, so just like done and burnt out at a certain point. And then when you recharge, you go out there and you do it again. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely the, my more informed opinion now. Like I've, I think that's the that's the way I view Lorraine Warren now, as opposed to her being this like clairvoyant psychic medium sort of person, you know. Mm-hmm. So the mother, uh, played by Lily Taylor, who's named Carolyn, uh, she is at this uh, seminar that they're that they're doing, and she decides to uh, meet up with them in the parking lot. She gets introduced to them by one of the younger college students that I guess is a partner of theirs. Um, and Isn't their and their intern, right? Yeah. And they, they, you know, that's where she introduces herself and basically says that she's having this problem in her home. And Ed and Lorraine kind of dismiss it a little bit, specifically Ed. Um, they talk about how late it is and how they just kind of, you know, they, they, you know, how it may just have an explanation that's really simple. And Lorraine it does have that kind of empathy because she feels something uh, from hearing, you know, uh, Carolyn's voice as she's trying to kind of like plead with them to go and see their home. So they do decide to do that, and I mm-hmm. think it's the next day because by that point, like it looked like it was dawn. Yeah, because or they, like they looked like it was dusk when it when it was like. Yeah, it looked like the end of a day, yeah. and then it looked like the end of a school day when she saw him next, and then so it had to be the next day, right? But you know what? That like terrifies me even more to think that they waited till the next day to go, because that means the night before. Like, That's true. The ghosts had just attacked. Yeah, their it may, daughter. maybe you know, it per- was. Yeah, per- it could have been the same night. And and that's the other thing too that like I think that this movie does that Exorcist did really well and Poltergeist does really well is it just I think a lot of movies are just once they introduce their monster to you they just go a mile a minute. Yep. And you are Time just left. Time becomes very weird. Yeah, and and I think one of the things that this movie does, much like Poltergeist and The Exorcist, is it shows you what it is like to kind of live with this for a while. Yep. You know, and I think in The Exorcist does a fantastic job of it, where poor Chris McNeil like basically puts her film on hold. Well, part of it is because the director is murdered. Yeah. But she also just like just pulls puts any kind of work on hold. While something is going on with Regan, and it the the film doesn't exactly show you like how time is passing, it feels like it may just be like a month or a few months, mm-hmm. you know. And but the the book is very clear about the fact that this is months and months and months that really? Regan is going through this. Oh shit! Because at one point they even make note of the fact that she spent like a month in Dayton, Ohio, at a clinic. Really, and oh, it's just shit. like that's what I mean. It's like it, 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 this, this just it adds a layer of realism to it. Maybe the fact should, that they're kind of stuck, you know, living with this for a minute. Maybe I should read that book then. 
One day I, I will. I recommend it, yeah. Mm-hmm. So after that, the Warrens, like you said, Warrens agree to take the case. They come over the next day and they start their initial investigation. And, you know, they, 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 their initial investigation is that they got, they got to start talking to everybody, right? Mm-hmm. They got to, they, they interview the kids and they interview, um, oh God, Carolyn, Carolyn and ugh, Roger, sorry. <laughs> like they have such simple names. How do I forget them? And, you know, they start interviewing them about, like, what what were the strange occurrences that started happening? And, um, you know, when did they start and how did they occur and at what time did they happen, right? So that's when they start noting. They tell them all the important stuff. Birds running into the windows for some reason. I think they mentioned that the dog didn't want to come into the house. They mentioned the clock stopping at 3 o'clock. Uh, one of the little Perron's parents... Uh, mention Rory and of course they talk about you know the the big one is the the ghost that attacked uh, I forgot which one of the sisters it was um to which the to which the um the Warrens tell the the parents that you know it feels that the the entire house needs an exorcism and you know they they have that back and forth, and I feel like they they do a they do a they they go into more of the world of exorcisms and stuff like that, being like, oh no, so you know exorcisms are more than just for people. Sometimes it's about expelling the 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 soul or the the entity completely from even an area, right? And this is, I believe, this is the scene where they explain the importance of why the clocks stop at three oh seven, right? And it's because. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to be that it's an affront to God because it's perverting the Holy Trinity. Mm-hmm. God, dude, they make Satan such a petty little bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't know why, like, I've, uh, this, this is interesting because it's, I'm not in any way advocating for Satanism. <laughs> but also, I mean, if you look up the Church of Satan, it's very less slight against God. And it's more be your own wolf. Mm-hmm. And it's like humanity is a pack of lone wolves and we're all lone wolves but together. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, man... Satan really got the short end of the stick here. <laughs> but I mean, of course, it's a it, like that's the other thing about these about these films, right? Is that they are very they are very Christian heavy, like it's all about the Christian symbolism, right? But that's also because that's kind of how Ed and Lorraine were. Like their big mantra is, you know, God put us together for a reason. Mm. And I don't know. I just thought it was like, I, I thought it was just like interesting little points. Oh God, she looks so terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it's Bathsheba. Yeah, so Bathsheba is who is discovered as being the demon that's haunting this family, right? Yep, she's the witch. And um, this well, is the part of the story that is, quote unquote, based on true events. It is a part of the story that is. You know, they, there was a person who lived in this farmhouse well, they, who was named Bathsheba Sherman. Well, sorry, real quick. They go over the history of the house. In the history, there was a couple suicides. And they included, like, some of the 
like and included some maids, right? Like some just uh, for some reason every couple years there who new owners there was always a suicide that took place mm-hmm. at this house. Mm-hmm. And one of them uh and one of the examples they give is that I think Rory, when Rory um you know, that someone lost a child named Rory and then that led to someone's death at that house. Um, so all these people get driven mad eventually to either commit murder, usually of a child, or to commit suicide at some point. And, you know, people always wonder, like, you know, what's the root of this? And that's where we get down to Bathsheba Sherman. Bathsheba, by the way, terrifying name. Yeah, of course. It, it, to me, it actually sounded like a joke at first. Like, you thought, like, how can a name be so evil? <laughs> But, you know, it, it, uh, really the original story is that apparently this woman uh, had an infant die in her care, which was not even her child. It was just, and there's no record of this child maybe even being something that existed at some point. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, this was the time that was shortly after the Salem witch trials. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, what happened was at some point people were allegating that she was a witch. And uh, that's pretty much a death sentence, and right? Yeah, during this during puritanical times in American history, if you were accused of being a witch, that was good enough for me. <laughs> and she doesn't even like. I mean, she she's not burned at the stake or anything like that, mm-hmm. right? Like she is. Uh, she actually ends up dying like of just. I don't know if it's like a stroke or an illness or something. Mm-hmm. Like she just rent, she just dies in her. So home. she dies of natural ass causes, not even at the hands because in the movie, she was hung, right? Yeah, which is not true. But that and it's it's strange that they take that liberty because that liberty becomes a central plot point. Well, in the next movie, they take a ton of liberties with the Enfield Poltergeist story. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this movie also does that to its betterment in some cases. Yeah. Because as scary as Bathsheba is in this movie, and I think she never gets any scarier than she does in the dresser scene. The dresser scene is, it's just the scariest scene in this movie. Easily, yeah. Because even once you see her, even once you see Bathsheba later in the movie, it's a puppet, right? And you're not ready for Bathsheba at that moment. Because, like you said, you were lulled into such a false sense of security. Yeah. And By the end, you already seen her before, and you were, you know what to expect. Yeah, and you know you're gonna see her again, and it just doesn't look as good when it's like focused on so heavily. Like, yeah. As it was, so you know, again, they they do a good job at turning these into monsters, and the second movie does an even better job because in the Enfield haunting, it decides to assign. The ghost or the demon dresses a nun, you know, in that film. I hated that scene. That was a good scene. And when we talk about the sequel, which we will at some point, I'm sure we will. um, We'll talk about my love-hate relationship with that. But yeah, I fucking hate the nun. Oh, God. (laughs) So, after they gather all their information... They go on a nighttime trip. They to they put a they set up um, by by they I mean the Warrens. Uh, they go back to the house and they set up cameras and they set up bells around the entire house. And they have like EVP meters and they have like like radio set up to try to capture like any any noises. And you know they they at this point is when they start. 
Oh, man. They, like, start... If I remember correctly, this is, like, where, like, weird stuff starts happening, right? Where all the, like, the, the flashes of light are going off all over the place, and the bells are going off all over the place, but... Um, one of the little parent girls, I think it was Cindy, she, she gets lured. There's a voice that's like targeting her, right? Mm -hmm. So while the, the rest of the adults are dealing with all this craziness going on, the little girl goes up, she goes to like darts upstairs. Oh, and the best, I think the, the, the other thing that like just fucking jolted me, like scared was there's this this scene where the little girl is walking past where one of these cameras are, mm -hmm. and the flash bulb goes yeah! off, snapping a picture as she walks by. That's probably it because that that's the part I'm thinking of. So, you know, they're going around. All this craziness is going on, like all these like weird phenomenon. Though, as the little girl girls goes upstairs, uh, Patrick Wilson. And uh, Ron Livingston go chasing after her, and when they like go inside her room, she's nowhere to be seen. Mm. And all there is is that creepy ass like dresser, the one, the ones that you have to pull the two doors open. Which those are the worst dressers in my opinion. <laughs> so you got to pull those two doors open, and she's not there. You know and. You know, they, you get you get creeped out because you're like, well, where'd she go? They they were right behind her. So at this point, uh, Ed gets the idea: turn off the lights, turn on, turns on a black light, and they start following the little girl's footprints. Which I thought this was really cool. I thought mm -hmm. this was a really cool piece, and I thought it was a really cool like investigative practice, right? And they end up seeing her footprints, and then. They see like a bunch of handprints on the back of the of the dresser, which they are then able to slide open and they find this hole and it's hidden inside the wall. So when they start going into the hole, they find little Cindy in there and yeah. she's hanging out. And it turns out that this is the place where the ghost named Rory, her you know, imaginary friend, takes goes when he's scared. So, right there, we learn two very important things. One, there is more than one ghost in this house. Mm -hmm. Which is a poltergeist called back. Yep. Poltergeist is a parade of ghosts that exist. And, um, and in Poltergeist, they make the investigators in that movie make it a point to mention that some of the ghosts that are haunting them are evil. But some are just ghosts that don't have anywhere to go that are just trying to get to where they're supposed to be. And that, it brings me to my second point. The second thing we learned is that there are, like you said, some ghosts are good, some ghosts are not. And there, on this property, there is one ghost that scares the shit out of every other ghost in the house. Yep. In Poltergeist, they refer to it as the Beast. And in this one, the Beast is, but for all intents and purposes, Bathsheba. So, as they investigate the secret passage, Lorraine goes in there, and as she starts kind of feeling her way through, she ends up falling through the wall all the way down into the, the cellar. Yeah, mm -hmm. down into the basement. First of all, I didn't know, I don't how thick are these fucking walls that a grown woman can fall through? Like, I've never been to the East Coast. I don't know what these houses are like, but that must be a big fucking house, first of all. Second of all, we finally see what the basement looks like. We have yet to see what it looks like. Wait, did we? 
Yeah, we saw it earlier. Uh, you gotta remember, I split this movie in Washington into two viewings. <laughs> so now, but now we get to see it at night, which is terrifying. And as we get down there, so Lorraine is disoriented. She she's freaked out, and I believe Cindy took the the wind up toy with her. Yes. Right? So in that crawl space, she's playing with the wind-up toy. So Lorraine starts playing with it, and she looks. She uses it to look around the cellar. And then, but she can hear somebody saying, she made me do it. Mm-hmm. And it re- keeps, whoever this is keeps repeating it, but Lorraine can't see them. So when she opens this music box, she starts looking around, and then she sees a reflection she sees this reflection of a woman weeping over a body and she turns around and yells at Lorraine, she made me do it. And this is precursored by another scene, which I forgot to talk about, where a housemaid had her with her slit, her with her uh, wrist slit open, scared the ever loving shit out of one of Ed's cop friends. I think his mm-hmm. name, I forgot what his name was. But he looked like a Brad. He looked like a total Brad. But he was a cool guy. Again, everyone in this movie are cool dudes. But they scare the shit out of him saying the same goddamn thing. She made me do it. And this is where Lorraine is able to piece together the what is going on. That Bathsheba is claiming mothers and using them to kill their children and then themselves. Mm-hmm. Because she is in service of Satan. And that is what a good Satanist witch does. And I'm like, oh, that is kind of, that's kind of terrifying. <laughs> that's kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. And throughout the entire movie, we start seeing how on, on Carolyn, Carolyn? Or Caroline? I'd say Carolyn. So we start noticing how, yeah, it's Carolyn. So in Carolyn, on Carolyn's body, you know, we see all these like grab marks and scratch marks and throughout the film. Yeah. Right? And, and I think one of the things that you're trying to figure out earlier in the film is who the demon is trying to possess or infest. Yeah. Right. And earlier on, it kind of gives you the impression that it's going to be the girls. And it all seems to be a misdirect because in the end, it really just wants the mother. Cause the girls were the ones that have been having the physical, uh, you know, altercations with the ghosts. They're the ones that can see the ghost clearly. But as Ed points out, the demons, quote unquote, target the ones that are psychologically already, uh, what's the word, traumatized, not traumatized, but the ones that are psychologically already affected. Yeah. And, and interestingly enough, like this, this happens really where it takes off is after this event has occurred. And they're all like, you know, it, everything feels really nice. Ed and Lorraine are in the home with the family. You know, they're getting along with the kids. They're getting along with the father who, you know, it seems to be the gr- biggest skeptic of them all. Mm-hmm. And even he's is appreciative of, you know, of everything that Ed and Lorraine are doing for them. And uh, Ed and Lorraine decide to give uh, Carolyn a break from all the stuff she's been doing. So they allow her to kind of go upstairs and take a nap. And while she does that, oh Lorraine God. is, you know, uh, she's doing the laundry where she's, like, taking the clothes off the pins and, 
and folding it and all that kind of stuff. And one of the seats goes flying off uh, of where it's hanging, right? Mm-hmm. And then it just like goes over what is a ghost or something like that. Something is standing there that shouldn't be there because right. we didn't see it. Yeah, and it, it just it, it's it's over a human form. And then the sheet just flies up into the window upstairs. And that's when Lorraine looks up and sees a demon or a ghost staring at her. It looked like Bathsheba, from, but it's very far away and mm-hmm. you can't make out the face. It could have been Carolyn. I'm pretty sure her, it was Bathsheba. But it was, yeah, like I'm sure it was Bathsheba. Because shortly but... after that is when Carolyn is sleeping in the bed. Oh, that's right, yeah. And she wakes up and Bathsheba is floating right over her face. And the way that she takes control of her is basically like by puking something into her mouth. What is it with these types of movies and puking? You know that? Like, why am I being possessed by throwing up in my mouth? Like, uh, it's such an unnatural act to throw up and throw up in general, right? Like, what goes in should not come out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At least not that direction. But... You know, like, Exorcism, Exorcist had the puking. This movie has puking. Drag Me to Hell had hella puking. Like, which was, I mean, that's also Sam Raimi movie. Sam Raimi just loves weird bodily fluids anyway. But yeah, like, there's something unnatural about having someone else's, like, fluids and gross shit on you, right? Ew, phrasing. (laughs) But she ends up getting possessed. At this point, they got to pull her out of the house, right? And they agree that the parents need to leave. Mm-hmm. So they go to this hotel, and Ed and uh, and Ed and uh, Ed and Lorraine tell, oh God, Ron Livingston's I don't remember his character's name, but they end up telling them that they're going to go that they have a priest. They're going to put in a word for the exorcism because at this point, it's important to note that. The Catholic Church, you know, just isn't handing out exorcisms all willy-nilly. Mm-hmm. As cool as it would be to think that there is an elite group of militant priests that go around punching Satan in the balls, that's not how apparently how the Catholic Church works. And there actually has to be justified cause to even, you know, attempt an exorcism. And apparently exorcisms are so dangerous that only a priest can do it. So, they they talk to their they send word to their man who sends word to the Vatican so that they can get the they can get the approval. And now, as they are kind of sh- closing up shop at uh, the parent house, we have this scene where Lorraine goes down to the water, and you know she gets a nice scenic view of the beautiful the beautiful lake, right? And then it's important to note that she carries with her, I believe it's a pendant with her daughter's picture. Mm -hmm. And she lost it when she fell through the crawl space Mm -hmm. the night before. So as she's down at the lake, she sees a body swim in front of her. An effigy of her daughter, like just floating lifeless in the lake wearing the same pendant that Lorraine has and she at that moment she knows Bathsheba's targeting her and targeting her family and shit gets real and they run and they get back home as fast as they can 
because Bathsheba is out for blood at this point. Mm. Didn't mean to sound so cheesy. But when the, as they get home, I believe this, is, this takes us to the Annabelle scene in the Warren's household? Yep. Right, so, because Annabelle is in the museum. Yep. And by this point, so much of the movie has happened that you've forgotten about Annabelle. You just think that Annabelle was just something to kind of establish the Warrens in this story. But, you know, she comes back. And, you know, it's storming at night. And little, I forget what their daughter's name. But the, the little Warren, you know, she wakes up. I believe she's staying with her grandmother. Her grandmother's staying at the house mm-hmm, with her. Mm-hmm. And she notices that the museum door is open. And this isn't just like a regular deadbolt lock. This door has like five or six locks on it. And then like they go through very great lengths. Earlier in the film, they had, and the Warrens have this uh, reporter that comes in to, you know, do a, do a, do a piece on them. And he, he, Ed, explains that they have a priest come in every month to bless the area to make sure none of the spirits get out. And they do this whole scene, this whole big hullabaloo about how the daughter can't go into that room un, at, under any circumstances and nobody is to touch anything and that only the Warrens are allowed in there. Suddenly this door's open and this little girl who had no right to be anywhere near all this shit suddenly has an open door full of all this craziness that's going to come right at her. And thinking her parents home are home, she starts looking around, and what does she see but that fucking creepy-ass doll in a rocking chair. In a rocking chair but being held by... Bathsheba. Yep. <laughs> Not alone! No. But you know what does creep me out? And I think it would have been... And I'm glad they did it this way and not the obvious way. Where the obvious way would, for me would have been if they both turn around, Bathsheba and Annabelle. But the fact that Bathsheba keeps looking out the window and only Annabelle turns around makes that scene extra terrifying. It's extra creepy. Because the thing is, Ed tells us that Annabelle, in the beginning, that there was never any Annabelle Higgins. And that what was really there was a demon trying to possess one of the one of the college kids. No, nursing kids. So it kind of ties in what was happening with the Annabelle story into what's going on here with the parent case. And now it makes you wonder, are these demons bros now? Are they going to be broing it up and helping each other going on these bro-down adventures? I don't fucking know. I would watch that. No, I'm just playing. I, w- I wouldn't watch that shit. <laughs> so Annabelle is ready to attack... And, but luckily in the nick of time, come in the Warrens and Ed is able to save his daughter right before, I believe, Annabelle is able to fling of the rocking chair right at his daughter. Mm-hmm. So they go, they secure their museum, lock up Annabelle in a place where she can't hurt anybody else. And now they know it's go time. They mm-hmm. got to they gotta push for this exorcism. Yeah. It's time to get the eye of the exorcist. Yep. And to just drive all the way back to wherever this place is. Yeah, because I'm not 100% sure where they are. Well, I think they're in Massachusetts. So, I don't know how long it would take for him to get back to... I mean, if Rhode Island is still New England, it's probably not that far away, right? I mean, it can't be from here. I don't know geography, so don't ask me. 
maybe um, four hours, right? Yeah. So, so they head back, and by this point, uh, Lily Taylor's character, Carolyn, has kidnapped the two youngest daughters because uh, the family was staying at a motel because yep. they had to be like taken away from the farmhouse. And at this point, it's you know, Carolyn or Bathsheba is taking the two youngest girls with her to the house so that they can finish what they need to finish. Which is murder, yeah. in case anyone was wondering. And, of course, that is one of those moments where, in the nick of time, you know, the Warrens show up as well uh, to be there along with their intern, we'll call him. Um, I don't remember what his name is, and I feel very bad because that guy, again, there is no bad acting in this no, film. No, no, he's a very likable character. And, and there I don't, seems to be something going on between him and the oldest parent girl as well. Really? Yeah. I didn't notice that. You're like, oh yeah. <laughs> but, you know, this is your standard exorcist fare from here. Oh yeah, uh, totally. Where, where, you know, uh, Ed is trying to perform the exorcism. What they do that's that's pretty interesting, though, is um, the girls are apparently, like, in the crawl space, right? Like, yep. like they're, they're trapped in the crawl space trying to keep themselves safe. And um, both Lorraine and the... And I, now I have to find his name. So uh, the intern's name is Drew. Okay. And uh, Drew and Lorraine are the ones who are looking for the girls. It's uh, somewhere in the crawl space. And Drew is the one that happens to find that they're under the boards in the kitchen. Now, he makes the awful mistake of giving away where the girls are. Because the moment that he says, I found them, uh, you know, Bathsheba possessed Carolyn Darts her head mm-hmm. back in like a just frightening, just oh, God. quick movement, and then she goes crawling into the walls like Fuck. to find them, right? Yep. <laughs> so, and the entire like exorcism scene was was cr- like it was cool to see how like you know the chair floating around oh, and yeah. the part where she's like flying around the basement, and you know I don't want to go into it because if you watch one. Exorcism, you watch a shit ton. Yeah. And, and the Bet- Betsiba puppet, you know, and the exaggerated facial expressions was very Evil Dead to me. Yeah. So it, I like that, too. Yeah. You know, it's a nice callback to that as well. But like you were saying, Bathsheba doesn't get more terrifying as when she's an actual person. Yeah. And it's like, at that point, like you said, this cuts back to Bathsheba being real, and now she has a target. And the worst part about this, she starts chasing, I think it's Cindy... Starts chasing her through the crawl spaces and shit, mm-hmm. and nobody can get to her. No, Ed gets stuck. Yeah, you know, like, um, shit. Ron Livingston, because I can never remember his real name in the movie. He's like stuck behind the rafters and he can't like cut through like the wood paneling. And then you got Lorraine like trying to break through the uh, floorboards to try to be able to, to to get to the girls, but she can't. Mm-hmm. So it's like, holy shit, they might fuck up. But then, you know, Patrick Wilson in his fucking manliest voice ever says, I command you back to hell or some shit like that. Right, but the part that, the, the part that actually ends up helping, and I'm glad that they call back to it again in the second Conjuring movie, but it's when you call the demon out by name. By name, and yeah. And cast them out. That's what it was. He goes, Bathsheba, I cast you back to hell or something. Well, like Lorraine's that. the one who, who who calls her by name. Okay. Yeah. I don't remember shit. <laughs> but, you know what? And, and, you know, like, they they have to, 
you know, convince Carolyn. They got to bring Carolyn. So they start talking to Carolyn about fighting the demon off, right? And what helps her, and this goes back to why I think if Lorraine is anything, she's more of an empath than she is a, you know, than she is a, a medium, is that she remember you know she she goes back and she makes carolyn remember that memory when they went to the beach her and her family and how happy she was that day and how much her family meant to her and that finally is able to to shake bathsheba and they, she loses her hold and carolyn's able to throw her back up and she's able to exercise the demon herself mm-hmm. now as you know uh, as cool as that is I really want my... I I prefer my exorcisms to have more of a punch. Literally. Because, you know, like... <sighs> Marin, like, punched the shit out of Reagan, so... Not Marin. Oh, was it? Karis. The, oh, Karis? Karis punched the shit out of Reagan. <laughs> and Karis was a boxer, too. Yeah, so he was fucking... <laughs> he was hitting her with the, you know, fucking two-piece combo over there. <laughs> so, you know, you know he was laying in her. So me personally, if there was a movie where a guy exercised demons by punching them out of people, I'd watch that. Just saying. So Hollywood, you want to make money? Come talk to me. <laughs> um, so yeah, th- that is pretty much how they expel the demon. Uh, the movie ends on a kind of like, you know, gag where... where... It ends on such a fucking Batman Begins moment. The, oh, I, I heard there's this story of something going on in Rhode Island or some shit. In Amityville. Oh, Amityville, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I um, heard of this case in Amityville. The only thing that would have been, it's like, I heard there's this demon in Amityville. He has taste for the theatrics. But they also do, like, the the music box one last time yeah. inside the Warrens, like, uh, you know, museum. And uh, from there, it's over. And you are expected to go walk out into the world from the movie theater and continue living your life, despite the fact that you've just had the pants, like, fucking shit. <laughs> the pants shitting experience that is the conjuring. <laughs> Uh, I think there's only one question left, and that is, uh, do we like this movie? Do you want to go first? Oh, I'll go first, then. I do like this movie. I do not like this movie nearly as much as I liked it, let's say, two years ago. And the reason for that is, this movie came out in 2013. It is now 2019, so I've had six years to digest this movie. I love this movie. It's one of my favorite horror movies. Uh, very good callback to a lot of horror movies, you know, Great characters. Patrick Wilson's my man crush every day. I'll fight anyone that says he's not. And, I mean, there's a lot to like in this movie. But now that I've... Kind of my palette has kind of expanded. And I've started watching other types of horror. And, you know, I gotta say, the jump scares, not a huge fan of. Not a huge fan of jump scares anymore. Not as much as when I was younger. I feel that what they're able to do in these types of movies is that they do a really good job of the setup towards the jump scares. And I think the way they do that is very well done. Mm. And I think that is, you know, the, like, for example, like the, the dresser scene we've been talking about. And it's probably the best jump scare in the entire movie. Between the misdirect, the false sense of security it leaves you, like, it's just very masterfully done. But the thing is, you get so sick and tired of you know, these musical cues that are supposed to tell you when to be scared, and then all of a sudden, ah, scary face! You know, it doesn't do... You you start realizing that's just cheap ways to get into your audience's head, you know? 
and it's like if I want to watch Jump Scare the movie, like I don't want to sit through two hours of this happening. Paranormal every... activity. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't want to sit through two hours or hour and a half of, the, of something scaring me every thirty minutes, or not thirty minutes, sorry, but maybe something every scaring me every like twelve minutes or some shit like that. I'd rather build up the tension and create an atmosphere where I feel uncomfortable the entire time. So I still love these movies and I think that these Amityville fucking types of the 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 Ed and Lorraine Warren extended universe movies are very well made and they're mm-hmm. very well done. What I'm realizing now is that my own personal taste has changed over the years. I'm less conjuring and more haunting of Hill House. And I I don't think you've seen it yet. I highly recommend you watch that movie. I mean, watch that movie. Watch that series on Netflix. It is very well done. Very similar to what we just watched. Very, very similar, actually. Um, But it deals with horror in such a different way where it goes... it, It plays up eerie over horror. And it plays off so well because every episode makes me feel uncomfortable. As opposed to feeling comfort uh, at certain parts and all of a sudden being scared, there's something about never truly feeling comfortable with a movie or a show House of that the really Devil plays well. That. Yeah, House of the Devil does do that. So, yeah, like that. I think that's what that's a big part of it. And but you know, it's still a good movie, and I still really like it. I recommend it. Um, what about you? How do you feel about this movie? I definitely like this movie. Um, I think. I'm very conflicted because I like the second one as well. And mm-hmm. I like... This has just been a decade for really great movies. Yep. So, to me, despite the fact that this movie uh, is kind of a classic already, just in the short amount of years that it's been out, and stuff like that dresser scene is just iconic at this point, um, I, I like it, but I'm a little lukewarm on it, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. And, um, but... You know, in my opinion, I think that the second one is where it gets better and they get it right. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that as well is because I just, I like the case that the second film is based on a lot more. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot more familiarity with it than I did with this case. You know, um, sorry, if you don't mind me interrupting real quick, I just got to interject. I think a very appropriate, a very appropriate kind of uh, comparison with this movie it's uh, a friend of ours talked about how you can only watch Sausage Party once and laugh at it. Have you ever seen it? So you can you probably aren't going to watch it a second or third time because you've already seen it the one time it did its job, right? I feel that's how The Conjuring is. You can only get the intended effect once and that's the first time you watch this movie. Because you know what to expect from there and on out. And that's like the pitfall to jump scares. Now, a movie like House of the Devil or a series like Haunting a Hill House where it's more about the world building, it's more about the atmosphere, it's more about playing on your emotions than it is about, you know, showing you, ah, scary shit. You know, those are the ones that really stick with you. So I do agree that, you know, I, th- I feel like that's kind of a good way to put it. It's a good movie. I'm just like not nearly as crazy about it as I thought it would be. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much our thoughts on this. Uh, we'd like to thank everyone for joining us for this episode of the show. Um, 
we enjoyed I enjoyed the conversation that we had uh, prior to the movie review, and I definitely enjoyed our review of this. Um, oh fuck yeah! If you guys want to talk to us about weird shit, go for it. Angel and I love talking about ghosts and hauntings and shit like that. Um, I. It's also very important uh, to remind everyone that starting on May 4th, we are going to be diving into the land or into a galaxy far, far away. Oh, you fucking nerd. <laughs> oh, you're such a fucking nerd. <laughs> because we are going to be reviewing uh, all the films of the Star Wars franchise. We're, again, we're doing two movies a month uh, leading up until the end of the year when uh, Star Wars Episode Nine finally comes out. In chronological order, mind you, which means we get to go through the lovely, drizzling shitstorm that is episodes one through three first. But right after that, we get to jump into the uh, one-off Star Wars films, and then we'll go into the original trilogy, which is, like, beloved by everyone. Yep. So we're looking forward to it. These next couple months, we're going to have a lot more regular content for you guys coming out, or at least a lot more scheduled content. Uh, in the meantime, you know, there's four weeks in a month, so we got two Star Wars movies coming out every week. Please keep suggesting stuff to do those other two weeks. Yes. Cause, uh, and also for the uh, reviews of the Twilight Zone series that's ongoing right now, the 2019 reboot of the, of the series, I'm going to be reviewing it once the series is wrapped up on CBS All Access. Uh, and I don't won't give any other thoughts on it now, other than I am a gigantic fan of this new series. I definitely recommend that you watch some of these episodes, especially uh, the most recent episode starring Stephen Stephen Yoon from Steven Yeun, Walking from Dead. Walking Dead. Yeah. yeah, he's fantastic in that. Uh, he's just a great actor. Like, I just love it. I, I love the casting choices in that series as well, and I cannot wait to discuss that once that series wraps up. So. Also, since Angel's plugging his own shit, I just want to plug my own shit. Uh, watch Doom Patrol on the DC Universe app. It is a great show, and I fucking love it, and I want there to be a season two. And uh, for every person that doesn't watch Doom Patrol, I, I will fucking find you. <laughs> All right, so uh, thanks again for joining us this week. Uh, please continue to leave us uh, comments and uh, reviews on the platform of your choice. I'd love to give a special shout-out to the mysterious people uh, who have left us two five-star reviews in our iTunes feed. I highly appreciate it, and we highly appreciate it as a show uh, to have that kind of, you know, those kinds of fantastic reviews. I think it's, it, it carries our show to having a much greater audience, and uh, we just really want to appreciate everyone who's appreciating the show. Yep, if you're a normal human that reviewed us, thank you. If you're Bathsheba or Satan, thanks, Satan! <laughs> So, uh, uh, yeah, again, uh, until next week, uh, this is Angel. And this is Avi. Later, turds.